Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Colossians, Paul's letter to the church of Colossae, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1, is where we are. We're in a series of messages where we are overviewing the books of the Bible, book by book, to get an understanding of how these books hold together and what they have to say to us. Today, we're in the book of Colossians. If you're looking at your outline that's in your bulletin, there's a misprint there. This is not the fifth sermon in the series. This is the 53rd sermon in the series tells me that we've been at this more than a year, so thanks for hanging in there. But Colossians is the book that we will overview today. Here's the key concept. Christ is preeminent. That's really how you summarize Colossians. Paul wants the Colossian Christians to know that Christ is preeminent above anything else. While you're finding Colossians 1, let me set the stage for you. It's about the year A.D. 60, and Paul is under house arrest in Rome. In this particular form of arrest, he's able to entertain visitors. He's able to write letters. He has time on his hands, so he does that. There are people that are coming and going and hearing from Paul as he continues a ministry of teaching. And one of those people who arrives and visits Paul in his Roman imprisonment is a man named Epaphras. Epaphras comes from Colossae. That's his hometown. And Colossae is a, in, in Colossae, there's a situation where uh, Epaphras is hearing some strange teaching among the Christians of Colossae. You see, Colossae is a multi-ethnic, religiously pluralistic city. In Colossae, there were animists, those who worshipped what they thought were the spirits of nature. There were those astrologists from Persia who looked for guidance from the stars. There were Gnostics, a new mystery religion that was uh, uh, burgeoning uh, to the surface. There was Judaism and idol worship and probably emperor worship along with Christianity. And in this city, as far as we know, even though there was a strong and thriving Christian uh, church, Paul never visited this city. But he was, in fact, the spiritual grandfather of those who lived in Colossae. You see, while Paul ministered in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles west of Colossae, Epaphras was visiting the city of Ephesus. And he heard the gospel message, and he came to Christ, and eventually he had to go home to his hometown, and when he went back to Colossae, he brought the gospel with him. And it was through the efforts of Epaphras then that this church began to grow, and the church was planted there. Now that in itself should get our attention, because that is how the gospel spread through the Roman Empire in the first century. That was Paul's strategy. He knew that it would take forever for him to visit every city and town and preach the gospel. So Paul strategically sought out the main cities, the cities that are likely to attract people visiting on business or on tourism, these main cities that had the good roads of the Roman Empire. And that's where he took the gospel. And he preached the gospel. And people came to Christ as personal Savior. And he was confident that those who came to Christ under his ministry, when they went back to their home, town, they would take the gospel with them and they would plant a church and do it all again. Paul understood that when you come to Christ as personal Savior and you are seeing Him as Savior and Lord, you have the DNA of the next church within you. And he counted on that happening, which causes me to ask the question, if I was the only Christian in this town, if you were the only Christian in this town, could we count on the fact that a couple of years from now there would be a church growing from your influence? Or would we be tempted to, to look around and say, I'm only one, and keep our faith to ourselves as a private and personal experience? 
That was not the mentality of the first century Christian. When they went back to their, their hometown, they saw it as an obligation to share the good news. And that's just what Epaphras has done. And he planted this church, and now he's visiting Paul in Rome, sharing a concern about what's going on. This, a, a, a strange teaching is starting to be taught. Scholars today look back and they, we call it the Colossian heresy. And we may not have all the details of what the Colossian heresy included because we have only one side of the conversation. Paul writes the letter to the Colossians to straighten out their thinking and to bring them in line with true Christianity. We don't understand all of the details, but we do know the Colossian heresy was based on a principle called syncretism. And syncretism is the idea of allowing non-Christian thought to blend in with Christian doctrine and to be accepted as true. And the heresy here in Colossae seems to be the beginnings of what will later be called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And that Gnosticism was the primary heresy fought for the next two centuries uh, by the Church of Jesus Christ. This particular brand seems to be Gnosticism blended with Jewish legalism and, and uh, they're kind of mixing it all together. The, the, the word Gnosticism is based on the word gnosis in Greek. And gnosis in Greek means knowledge. And this is what they taught. They taught that they, the Gnostics, had a new and superior knowledge. Uh, something beyond what the, the, the Bible and what Jesus taught. And it was based on an assumption that ran all throughout Greek culture. And that assumption was this. That matter, the physical world, is inherently evil. But the spiritual world is inherently uh, pure. And so the Gnostics looked at the Old Testament and they see Yahweh creating matter. And they thought to themselves, well, there may, must be a God more supreme than Yahweh because we believe that the supreme God would never create matter. And they looked at the idea of Jesus Christ being the incarnate Son of God. And they rejected that because they, they couldn't uh, get their head around the fact that God would ever take on human form. And so about Jesus, either they taught, well, he just seemed to be human, but he really wasn't, or that he wasn't God at all. He was just a man that was used for the purposes of God. And Paul sees this heretical doctrine uh, perversion and he sees added to it Jewish legalism of lifestyle. And when he sees that, he knows you have a toxic mixture of theological falsehood. So that's why he writes this letter. And he takes on these ideas. And I want you to follow his logic so that you understand what we are meant to understand about uh, God and, and our Lord Jesus. So follow his logic with me. In chapter 1, verse 15 is where we'll start. You can see how he's targeting these ideas when he says, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and in invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. Paul understands what we must understand, and that is the thing that is most central is, what do you do with Jesus? The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think about Jesus. And Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What he's going to do throughout the first chapter is heap superlative after superlative to prove the supremacy of Christ. The first thing he says is he's the image of the invisible God. And we should stop there for a moment. Because how can you be the Im image of something invisible? He's not saying Jesus looks the way God looks. He's saying that Jesus has the distinguishing characteristics that God has. 
He is God. He has the characteristics of God. And in order to understand that, there's a little insight into the culture. The word that he translates image uh, uh, is the word icon, the Greek word icon. And in the culture of the day, when uh, a contract, a legal contract was going to be created, that contract would have a section called the icon. And in that section, you wrote down the distinguishing characteristics about the guy who's filling out this contract. So that when he took this contract to somebody else, they could look at that and say, aha, these are, you have the distinguishing characteristics of the person who made this contract. This must be you. That's what Paul is saying when he says he's the image of the invisible God. He's lifting it right from the legal uh, uh, process of his day. He has the characteristics of God. And he goes on to say he is the firstborn over all creation. Now the Jehovah's Witness take that verse and they misunderstand it. They think that it means that he, he is teaching that Jesus was created first. But that's not what he says. He says he is the firstborn, what? Over all creation. He's talking about rank. He's talking about his position. He's making the case for the fact that Jesus as the firstborn is the inheritor of all that is. All of this belongs to him. He is the heir. That's his position of supremacy. In verse 16, he goes on, just in case you're confused, to say he is the creator. In verse 17, he says he is before all things. Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, existed outside space and time as God the Son. In verse 17, he goes on to say he is the sustainer of everything. God didn't create the universe and walk away. It's not operating on autopilot. He didn't create the world and then kind of got busy in another project like I do at home. He's still involved, and Jesus is the one who sustains. He goes on to say in verse 18, he's the head of the church. Therefore, you don't get to change the doctrines of the church. In verse 18, he says he's the firstborn from among the dead. It means that his resurrection is the pattern that we will follow in our resurrection. One day, we will have resurrected bodies just like him. And in verse 19, he does something even more profound. He takes a word from the vocabulary of the Gnostics and he claims it for Christ. Let me read it to you. Follow along. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The word for fullness is pleroma. And the Gnostics taught this, that the play, what they called the pleroma was the sphere of spiritual beings that went back in a spiritual hierarchy all the way back to the, the uh, supreme God, okay? All of these spiritual beings were called emanations. One of those emanations is Yahweh in their understanding, okay? And, and you have to trace all those emanations back to get to the supreme being and all of where they dwell is called the Pleroma. And Paul is saying, please stop thinking about all that spiritual gobbledygook. In Jesus, you have the fullness of God, not in all of that, uh, all of that theory that the Gnostics are putting forth. And in him, he says, verse 20, we are reconciled to God. Outside of a relationship with Christ, we are deserving of punishment and judgment. But Jesus took that punishment on himself. And through his substitutionary death, we have a, a reconciliation with God. Because he was on a rescue mission when he came. And since this is who Jesus is, he is worth following. He is worth believing in. He is worth trusting. And then he says in verse 24, and he's worth suffering for. Now I rejoice, verse 24, in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Sometimes we misunderstand what Paul is saying there. What could he mean when he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking? What he means is this. Jesus is no longer physically with us. He's up in glory at the right hand of the Father, but his enemies are still physically with us. And there is still suffering to come. 
They mean for Jesus to suffer, but they take it out on us. Paul is saying, I am willing to take the blows that are intended for my Savior. Because I know that in taking the blows that are intended for my Savior, that I push the gospel forward. That the church and the gospel message of Jesus goes forward. And there are those taking those blows today. But he's worth suffering for because of what he's done for me. He's died for us. Certainly we'll suffer for him. He's worth following. And then in chapter 2, Paul says, and all of this means that the the teaching of Jesus Christ is supreme above human philosophy. Go to chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceitful uh, philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In that one verse, he is negating everything that the Gnostics teach. He is the fullness of God and it is in bodily form, fully God and fully man while walking the face of the earth. You see, the false teaching is that we have something more. We have something that's, that's better and that's to be added to what you know about Christ. And Paul's saying, oh, you already have the fullness of God and it's in Jesus Christ. And so for the rest of chapter 2, Paul begins to separate fact from fiction about true spirituality. He says, fiction, Gnosticism will give you a necessary insight greater than what you can find in Christ. Fact, in Jesus you already have the fullness of God. Chapter 2, verse 9. Fiction, you will be more spiritual if you follow the rituals of the law, uh, specifically circumcision. Fact, Paul says that when you come to Christ, He performs a spiritual circumcision, cutting away your guilt and your shame. And you are fundamentally changed from the inside out. And you demonstrate that change by following the Lord in baptism. Go to chapter 2, verse 11. In Him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. Water baptism is a picture of the fact that there has been a change fundamentally within you because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Fiction. You can know God better through mystical visions and encounters with uh, uh, mysticism. That is embedded in verses 18 and 19. But the fact is you know God through Christ alone. You see, it is the spiritual seducers of every age that make the claim that we have a fuller vision. We have a new word. We have a latest vision. Something else to add on to the gospel message of Jesus. It's always been the pattern of deception from Mohammed to Mormonism. It is exactly the same. It's nothing different. Paul says you have it all in the word of God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fiction. Faith will cause you to live by rules and regulations. Fact. Faith gives you liberty to be your true self. Go to verse 20 of chapter 2. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? See, he's saying all these rules and regulations that that you're hearing about, this is the world's rules, and the world will pass away. But what you have in Christ is eternal. And he goes on to say in the end of chapter 2 that, you know, what, what, what happens is legalists seem at first glance to be very humble. Legalists put on the facade of I do this because I'm, I'm humble. But in reality, legalism is built on pride, 
A legalist believes that they themselves are the supreme force beyond their sal- for their salvation. So if I look right, if I act right, if I eat right, if I celebrate the right things at the right seasons at the right times, if I check all those boxes, then I can be in for sure with God. But I'm doing it all myself. And Paul comes along and he says, listen, that's not humility, that's pride. Humility is when you kneel before the cross of Christ and you say, be merciful to me, a sinner, O Lord. Humility is seen in repentance and falling in the mercy of God. And then, when you seek to live the righteous life, you seek it out of love for your Savior, not out of li- on a list. And that's what we're called to do. Paul has made the case for the doctrine, the true doctrine of Jesus Christ against the falsehood that they're hearing. And he makes a transition between chapter 2 and chapter 3 that he always makes in his epistles. First doctrine, then duty. Based on this truth, let me show you how you're supposed to live. That transition happens at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. Now, of course, you recognize that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it with chapters and verses. Nobody writes a letter like that. We have added this later, but we see a clear transition of thought at this point. And so he's going to get to the point of, let me tell you how to live this out. But before he goes there, he wants to make sure that you see life from the correct perspective. So follow along with me, chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, he's saying, before I tell you how to live your duty in Christ, how to live it out, you need to have the right perspective. And the perspective you need to have is a heavenly perspective. You need to recognize that you have a citizenship in heaven if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And you are already living eternal life. You are already living your eternal life. And this part of it is the shortest part of your existence. There is glory to come. And when you get a perspective of the fact that I have a citizenship with heaven and right now I am living my eternal life already, things will begin to change in the way that you behave. Not based on somebody's rules, based on the fact that I want to honor the king I have in glory and I want to live for him. And so Paul begins to tell them the way that they are to live. And and he outlines it this way. There are some things you must put off and there are some things you must put on. In fact, he says it even stronger. He says there are some things you must kill off and some things you must put on. I used the image in my mind this way. When I was a boy and, uh, you know, I come in maybe after a Saturday of playing outside with my friends, my mom always said, go upstairs and change for dinner. You know, here's what I never thought she meant. I never thought I was to go upstairs in my dirty play clothes and put my clean clothes on on top of them. I never thought that. I knew that she meant go upstairs, take those dirty clothes off and put your clean clothes on and then come. And that's the image that we'll see Paul come back to uh, in chapter 3. He says, there are some things that you need to put off, literally kill off. And this is what they are. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. These are the things that need to be put to death. This is how the list begins. He begins with the word, put to death, pornea. Is that recognize? You recognize that word? Pornea. So based for our word pornography. 
Sexual immorality is any sexual practice outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Anything that is not that is pornea. Paul says, put it to death. Has no place in your life. And he goes on with the list, but that's not the whole list. Go down to verse 8. He has added sins of attitude and of speech. I'll summarize it. He says, kill anger, kill rage, kill malice, kill slander, kill filthy talk, kill lying, kill twisting the truth. And the reason for all of this is given in verse 11. Because here in the family of God, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. See, the, the logic is this. There used to be a time in your life when you would blame your bad behavior on your genes or on your upbringing or on your circumstance or on your temperament or on your, 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 your national identity. You used to blame all those bad behaviors on all those things, but there is no room for that in your life anymore. Why? Christ is in all and is all. In this place, it's all about Christ. And He has the power to change you. So stop blaming all that stuff. Put that stuff off. It has no place in your life. And you're going to put some things on. That's the good news. It starts in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's what we're meant to put on. I am so glad that he uses that imagery of putting something on. And the reason is because it just calls to mind the fact that every morning when I get up, I have to make a choice to put something on, right? Did any of you sleep in what you're wearing right now? You put something on today, right? I didn't sleep in these clothes. I put them on. I had made a choice to put them on. And I did it in the dark so I wouldn't wake up Sylvia, but I still put it on, <laughs> right? And it's a choice, day by day, a choice. And just like you look in the closet and you choose to put something on every day, Paul said, I want you to choose righteousness every day. I want, to I want you to choose compassion. I want you to choose forgiveness. This is what you choose every day. And you must do it every day. You don't go back and say, well, I was compassionate yesterday, so forget it today. <laughs> no, every day, put this on, day by day. And that is the walk of faith. And when you live your life, the walk of faith, that way, it's going to change the way you live in relationships with people. It's going to change how it is in your house. It's going to change how it is in your workplace. And so Paul's pretty specific about this. He goes, here it is. Here's the household. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The duties in your home have to do with authority and love. In the workplace, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you, to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. I want to take a moment and talk about slavery. The, this verse is used by the critics of the Scripture to say, See, Paul, Paul teaches slavery. Paul's not teaching slavery. Paul recognizes that slavery exists. Okay? He understands that he's living in the Roman Empire and there are some historians which estimate that up to one half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves so at some point. Certainly a third of the population were slaves. And the slaves in the Roman Empire were the total property of the master. If that master decided this slave needs to die, he would die unquestioned. There was no legal recourse. And along comes Christianity. And they say, you know, every person is worth, worthy in the sight of God. 
Every person is created in the image of God. Jesus died for every person, and he has a plan and a purpose for every individual, even slaves. And that message spread throughout the population of the empire. And soon you see this movement of response to the fact that God loves me, even a slave. And you go to the book of Romans at the very end, and you read the list of names, and you will find common slave names throughout that list of Paul gives greetings alongside freedmen, alongside nobility, alongside landowners. And the message of the cross is this. We're all equal in the sight of God. There is common ground at the foot of the cross. And that message eventually kills slavery. But right here, Paul recognizes it's still here. The principles that he says, though, translate for us into the workplace. And it's simple. Do your best in all aspects of your job. Remember who your real boss is. Somebody might sign your paycheck, but your real boss is Jesus. So sweep that floor as if Jesus is going to walk on it. Build that machine as if Jesus is going to use it. Cook that meal as if Jesus is going to eat it. He's the real boss. And bosses, you live under the authority of a gracious God. So you be gracious in your authority over your workers. And Paul goes into what we see as chapter 4, and he has some more duties. He says, you have a duty to be praying because that changes things, so please pray. He asks for prayer himself. He says, you have a duty to be wise in the way you deal with outsiders. Speak graciously. Speak wisely. Don't make the gospel look bad in the eyes of the outsiders. And lastly, he says, you have a duty to work as a team. From chapter 7, um, verse 7, excuse me, forward, he, he gives his teammates names. Embedded in that list is a principle that we're all in this together. These names at the end of Colossians are the people that you don't hear about very often. They don't write books. They're not on stages. But Paul says, this, it, these are my, my supporting cast members for this kingdom work. And it is Tychius. It is Onesimus. It is Aristarchus. It is Epaphras. It is Luke. It is Demas. It is Nympha, a woman on the list. And it is, verse 10, do you see it? Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, why do I stress that? Because this is the man who abandoned Paul in the first missionary journey. And this is the man who Paul was genuinely so enraged with that he wouldn't allow him to come on the second missionary journey. And Barnabas and Paul separ separated ways. And now he's with Paul in Rome, ministering together 13 years later. And what's the message? Don't write people off. Be a forgiver. Be ready to forgive. Over that time, Paul has cooled and Mark has matured. And now they're together on the team. If you're the one who has given offense, you need to grow up and be willing to repent. If you're the one who needs to forgive, give forgiveness so that we can work together as a team. Because as we do, what happens is we make Christ's, Christ preeminent. Believe pure doctrine. Do your duty out of love for the Lord. And Christ will be preeminent.